Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, an officer who survived being shot 14 times. In this scenario, I've been on the ground for a long time now. It's possible that he is going to want to come out and try and shoot me and finish me off. Derek McManus is a 40-plus-year veteran of the South Australian Police and, while serving, was considered one of the state's most qualified and effective tactical operators. What they're trying to do is wear you down physically so that mentally you can't second-guess yourself. After joining the force in 1976, Derek moved his way up the ranks before being selected for the exclusive Star Group, a tactical special operations unit, which took on some of South Australia's most intense cases. It's there that Derek was shot, a shocking 14 times. It went to this absolutely pristine white, and it started running through my mind, is this the white light that people talk about? Before that, though, we'll hear from Derek about a job earlier in his career, another case involving a firearm that almost ended in the murder of his partner. We were driving down one of the main roads in the area, went past a hotel. There was a dirt car park alongside the hotel, and that's where a whole heap of semi-trailers used to park in this dirt car park. But there was a car between the semi-trailers. My partner and I both said, that's odd. Let's go and take a look at that. So we drove up to the car, and as we drove up, we saw the interior light on, and we've gone, okay, people in the car. Pulled up on the driver's side. My partner went to the driver. I went to the passenger. The passenger was a female. And as we approached the car and started looking at them and inside the car, uh, you know, we're both vigilant, very, very vigilant, which is a real bonus for us in this uh, scenario. But we're looking at them, looking at the car, and we see some drugs on the centre console. And it's silver foil, um, a lighter, a spoon, a syringe, all those sorts of things on the centre console. And we've just glanced at each other. We didn't have to say anything. As you know, you know exactly what your partner's thinking just by that glance. Instant, we say, we need to search this car and give them all the authorities to do that. And the female starts objecting straight away. No way. There's no way you're going to search this car. And I've given her the caution. If you hinder me, I'm going to arrest you. Uh, And she's still swearing and telling us, we're not going to search the car. So I've said, you're under arrest. I've started pulling her out of the car. I've turned around, put one handcuff on her. And all I hear from the car is, he's got a gun, he's got a gun. And that was my partner calling out. What had happened is, as I'd pulled the female out of the car, because she was sitting on the seat, but she was also sitting on a handbag, the driver has reached into the handbag and pulled out a pistol and turned and pointed it at my partner's chest and started pulling the trigger. 
Now, the fortunate thing for us is that that weapon was broken and they didn't realise it. It was a stolen weapon. They'd only stolen it that night, but he had been pulling the trigger. It didn't operate unless the gun had actually been cocked. The offender calls out to his girlfriend. She has climbed over the top of this wrestling match and she's cocked the gun. The gun is now operational. It will fire. Fortunately, I've just slipped my thumb between the hammer and the gun and held the hammer back so that it couldn't be fired. Now, that was an absolute bonus for us. We continued to struggle for about another minute, minute and a half. And eventually other police arrived and he was disarmed. He gave up. I will have those memories and I will say, what if my partner hadn't done that? What if I hadn't done that? If it had panned out another way? I certainly know that if that weapon had been used, he had shot my partner. I have no doubt at all he would have turned around and shot me as well. No doubt in my mind. It's the way it would have played out. But I just prepare myself for that. Derek, you had the capacity quite clearly to deal with an incident like that yourself, and that requires a, a real mental toughness. And But of course, you go home at the end of that shift, and, and I, I think I'm right in saying, Derek, you were married at the time. Correct. And you go home at the end of the shift, and now that's, that's a, for want of a better word, that's an interesting discussion to have with a partner. You know, we were just chatting off air. There's not too many folks that come home after a day at the office and, you know, how was your day? Well, I, you know, my partner nearly got shot, so did I. It's... How did that go with regards to, you know, you're your, your talking about it with your family and things such as that? I have a fairly relaxed approach to most of these things, never dismissive of the seriousness or the impact it's going to have on other people. But I always feel if we go in with hesitation and reservation and I've got terrible stuff to tell you, then the emotions go up immediately and the emotions are high before we even have that discussion. So I generally like to break into conversations like that in some way that causes relaxation of, hey, listen, I've got a story to tell you about what happened at work today. And then we got into the deeper discussion and her face dropped and it was quite emotional for her. But it was always a reality for us that this was always something that could happen. It's not something that we had actually discussed. And this is one of the things that it's something that police officers should consider more often to actually have that conversation with their partner. If I get shot at work, what's the impact on you going to be? Because quite often we go, well, what's the impact on me? I'm the person who gets shot, blah, blah, blah. No, we have an impact on our family as well, our wife, our children, our team. Uh, and we've got to consider those impacts as well. And they are just as important as the impact on uh, the individual. You spoke earlier, you used the term, I think, that hypervigilance, you know, and um, that's something that is a necessary uh, attribute, of course, uh, policing. But it's also something that can weigh fairly heavy on the shoulders of some, you know, we often hear, don't we, of uh, returned servicemen coming back after active duty, and, and it's very hard to turn that hypervigilance uh, off, and, and that can cause its own its own issues. After an incident like that, when you're back out on the street, you're back working, it sounds to me that you had a fairly, um, a, very, a very good way of processing this. Um, could I ask, did it increase that hypervigilance when you're back on the street, you know, when you're approaching that next car as a general duties cop, that next turnover? Or, or would you say that you just continued approaching the job the same as you had previously? I'd love to be able to say that I kept on approaching the job as I did previously, but there is absolutely no doubt that this, and I don't remember it specifically, 
but I don't have any doubt it would have impacted me. The next time I approached a car, I would have been that little bit more cautious, that little bit more observant, looking differently. And when I move people around in the vehicle, I'd be more observant of what they're sitting on, what they're hiding, what's close to them. There's no doubt about that at all. I'm very, very fortunate that I have never, ever been dismissive of risk. I had a partner at the time, Sam Rashid, and he was even less dismissive of risk than what I was. So we were a perfect partnership. He, in fact, he was a, uh, a partner that was so proactive that I was probably the best partner to work with him at the time because I was of the same ilk. Many people were more relaxed and keener to have a lot more fun rather than serious policing. But there's no doubt his proactivity, his uh, actions on the day are what saved his life, but also mine. Now, Derek, let's just fast forward to a couple of years to around 1989. You were selected to become a member of uh, a pretty prestigious group within the South Australian Police, the uh, STAR Group, which is the Special Task and Rescue Group. Derek, can you just have a, a bit of a chat to us about that selection process and the ongoing training as a member of that group? The um, STAR Group is a very hard section to get into. Every state has their own Victoria has the Special Operations Group, Uh, New South Wales has Special Weapons Operations Section, Queensland has their own, and every state has theirs. And we are closely aligned with the military SAS. So at the top level of our performance, we are responsible for counter-terrorism. So if there's a terrorist incident in Australia, one of our groups will respond to it. And we will contain it, if possible, until the SAS come and take over it. So going into a, a section that's operating at that level, the selection process is extreme in the least. The physical intensity is huge because what they're trying to do is wear you down physically so that mentally you can't second guess yourself. You have to perform instinctively because we've all got this facade that makes us look pretty, makes us look good. We can look as if we're great leaders because we can think things through. How would they want us to answer this? They want to wear us down to the point where we don't even bother with that. If we're going to get angry, we're just going to come forward and be angry. So they want to see us at that level. So we were running, we were swimming, we were jumping, we were lifting things, we were climbing towers, we were abseiling, we were going into caving situations. They'll then throw you into shoot-no-shoot situations in the middle of the night. Reasonably real scenario where we've got to make a decision, is this offender really going to be a threat to us or not? Now, remember, this is with no sleep, virtually no sleep. So you're not able to think it through. This is just your instant reaction. Every time you're making a decision, it's got to be instant, but it's got to be fast, and you can't rethink it, rethink it. What do they want me to do? No, this is just exactly how I act. They throw us into gas tents where the gas is so thick, and this is tear gas, uh, and the tear gas back in the day was CS gas, and that just attacks anything that has moisture On your body, it attacks. So under your arms, in your groin, down your throat, in your eyes, this CS gas just attacks it. And you're throwing into a tent, which is just absolutely smoke-filled. You've got a gas mask on. You find the instructors. They say, take your gas mask off. Now tell us your name, your address, your names of your children, whatever it is. 
just so that you can be talking to see how you handle the gas. And you come out of there and you are coughing and you are spitting. And uh, I remember that the, the mucus, I would call it the mucus, was running from my nose down to the ground. It was just pouring out of me uh, as I was trying to get this gas out. But as that was happening to me, one guy has come out of the gas tent and he has just gone into a military jog and started jogging about 15 metres and then flat on his face, ground up his face. So it played on his mentality and he wasn't able to manage that. And uh, so there are those sorts of reactions that they're looking like. So it's just this absolutely intense course. Most people do it twice. Some people do it three times before they actually pass. Now, Derek, you'd been on the uh, a member of the star group for around five years. There was an incident that you were called to, I'll call it a shooting, it's probably putting it mildly in the Barossa Valley. This was involving a, a gentleman by the name of Tony Douglas uh, Grosser, and this is a an incident that you attended that is like probably no other that any other police officer will have experienced. C- can you, Derek, walk us through that, please? The offender in question, Grosser, we had been in two other operations with this person in the past. He was being investigated for fraud offences and the first investigation would have been done by CIB detectives, rang him up and said, hey, listen, uh, we want to talk to you about the fraud matters. Come on into the police station. He's gone, no, I'm not coming into the police station. They said, uh, okay, well, we'll come out to see you. And he said, any copper who comes to my house is going to get shot. So the detectives called Star Group and on that first job, he was living on a rural property, fairly large. So we did uh, a crawl at midnight under fences, over fences where we needed to. Uh, and we positioned ourselves at windows and doors to listen if he was preparing weapons or uh, was going to be any kind of threat as police walked up the driveway to his house. He didn't do anything. Police knocked on the door uh, and he's gone, oh, what's all this about? You know, no, I was only joking. You shouldn't have taken that seriously. But obviously we did take it seriously. Any threats to shoot anybody, let alone police officers, are always taken seriously. Uh, we took his weapons off of him. We took his firearms license off of him. He was then appearing in court for the fraud matters. It got to a point where he was supposed to appear in court. He has partner has rung the court and said uh, Tony can't come to court today because he's in the Neuriopter hospital. The only problem with that scenario is there is no Neuriopter hospital, right? So we had a hint that they may be telling some lies. The courts have gone, okay, we're going to issue a warrant for his arrest. They contacted police. Police immediately defaulted to, we'll throw this to the star group to go out and make this high-risk arrest. So we were given a very in-depth briefing. We went out to the Barossa Valley. We went to the house in two police vehicles, and we approached the house. I was driving the front vehicle. Camera was in the back vehicle. You see us approach the house. We know that he is inside the house because we have one of our marksman observers or snipers sitting in the bush throughout the last 20 minutes. He didn't have a weapon because there was perceived to be no need for the sniper to have a weapon. He wasn't there to to shoot. He was there just to observe. And the, the main role of any sniper is to get into position without being seen, without being heard, and be able to report back information to the commander so he can better run the operation safely. So we had the sniper out there. We knew the offender was inside the house. We knocked. We called. There was no answer. Knocked and called again. Again, there was no answer. At this stage, I've gone down the side of the house 
Our plan was to go through the front door of the house, but that was going to require opening a screen door with a, a screen door popper. Then we'd have to use a battering ram to go in through the heavy wooden door. I went down the side of the house to have a look at a glass sliding door because we'd be able to make an, uh, an entrance through there uh, easier, faster, safer, more efficiently, more effectively. As I got to within about two feet or 60 centimetres of that door, the offender started to shoot and I was his target. He was using an SKK, Chinese military assault weapon. It's the weapon that the Chinese use when they go to war. The bullets fired are the same the Chinese use when they go to war. It was a, a 7.62 or 308 round. He fired 18 times in less than five seconds, and he hit me 14 times. When he started shooting, I just had absolutely no idea what was happening to me. I just suddenly started falling to the ground. But halfway to the ground, I looked at that glass sliding door and I saw those small round holes hadn't been there just a moment before. Then I heard the sound of gunfire somewhere behind that. Still hadn't felt any pain or impact, but I'd rationalised small round holes, sound of gunfire, me falling irrationally. I must be falling because I'm getting shot. I've fallen to the ground, my feet pointing in the direction of where the bullets are coming from, my head facing away. And while I'm lying here is when those two bullets hit my left thigh. Like he is still firing at me as I'm lying on the ground. Um, and th when those two bullets hit, time slowed right down. And the first one hit and it was like a sledgehammer just pounding into my thigh. No pain, but I definitely felt the impact. And then the shockwave from that impact went up through my body, all the way to the top of my head, my body writhing on the ground and lifting off. And then that shockwave came back down as my body settled back down to the ground. And then I felt the individual impact of the second bullet. And again, it's that sledgehammer just slamming into me and the shockwave going up, shockwave back coming back down. I knew I needed to fire back. I already had my pistol in my hand, but before I pulled the trigger on that first bullet, I went through a thought process and my thought process was I'm going to pull the trigger on this bullet and it's going to travel in the direction of where the bullets are coming from. But I'm firing back along the length of my body and at the other end of my body are my feet. And when you're lying on your back, which way do your feet point? Up in the air. I knew that I had to get up just that little bit just to shoot over the top of my feet. But I've got a flak vest on, I've got weaponry, I've got equipment. Uh, so my upper body is much heavier than my legs. And as I've lifted my upper body up, my feet have come up to counterbalance. I knew that as soon as the body gets physically injured, the shock is going to take over and blood is going to be rerouted away from the frontal cortex of our brain where we do our higher level thinking, we do our problem solving, we do our creativity. It's not going to get completely drained, but it gets drained enough that it doesn't operate properly. The blood goes to the essential organs for fight and flight panic. And I knew that I needed to control that shock and get the blood flowing back into the brain so that I could do that higher level thinking, the problem solving, the creativity in the midst of it. There was one bullet went through my left forearm, broke the radius in two places, severed the radial artery. And so I was lying on the ground for three hours after this with a severed radial artery. In my right wrist, there was a piece of shrapnel. That piece of shrapnel severed the ulnar artery. Fortunately, that piece of shrapnel stayed in the artery and, and blocked it and it didn't bleed. But the radial artery in the left forearm was just completely open and able to bleed for the entire three hours that I was lying on the ground. Now, anybody with a bit of a medical first aid background realizes if you sever an artery, it generally means you're dead within two to three minutes if you don't treat it. Um, we don't know exactly why. 
but that artery went into fibrillation, so the ends just closed off for whatever reason but on their own accord. It was still bleeding, but not as an arterial flow. So very, very fortunate there. There were two bullets that went into my stomach. I was wearing what we know as a flak vest. They stop a certain type of bullet. These bullets went straight through the flak vest and lodged in my stomach. I lost 30 centimetres of small intestine, 15 centimetres of large intestine. There were two bullets that hit my left thigh. These two bullets seemed to take 30 seconds to hit me. They're the last two to hit me and time slowed down. One bullet went right through my Achilles tendon on the right-hand side and took out 80% of the thickness of the Achilles, leaving 20% for me to be able to move around or do whatever I needed to do on 20% of an Achilles tendon. A bullet or bit of shrapnel went in behind my right knee, needed half a dozen stitches, and there were three bullets that hit me that didn't penetrate. One of them hit the ceramic plate on my chest. Now, this ceramic plate weighs seven kilos. It's rated to be able to stop this sort of weapon Um, and people say well why don't you have ceramic plates all over you this plate weighed seven kilos so we can't have those all over our body i had one on my chest and one on my back that took a direct hit that hit was right over the heart lung area so if it wasn't that for that ceramic plate stopping that bullet um, it would have been a very different story and and i'm told that when you get hit in the ceramic plate it's like being hit with a sledgehammer the bruising the impact the pain behind it is just that intense when i fired back he stopped i then rolled to my right a couple of times on on full length body roll Uh, i've managed to get to my feet despite the injuries to my left thigh where i'd lost about 30 percent of the muscle despite the injuries to my achilles where i only had 20 percent of it left i was able to get to my feet and i staggered around the corner Again, I still hadn't felt any real pain at this stage. I could see my left forearm. I could see bones were sticking out. The blood was dripping onto the ground, but there was no pain associated with it. Again, doctors can't explain to me why that is. Lots of different theories, possibilities, but they can't say this is definitely what it is. Um, But I'd only walked about seven or eight metres. I started feeling weak through shock, loss of blood, the injuries, and I ran through my mind it's possible that he is going to want to come out and try and shoot me and finish me off. And if he does that, I'm pretty much useless. I've got a pistol. Uh, I can't run. I can't move. But it suddenly hit me and I called out as loud as I possibly could so that he would possibly hear it. I'm hit. I'm hurt. But I can still shoot. Now, whether he heard it or not, I don't know. It made me feel a lot better. But it was certainly to try and intimidate him so that he thought, okay, it's not going to be an easy target. Um, And he certainly didn't come out. In this scenario, I've been on the ground for a long time now. I could feel my blood draining from my body. I could see it pooling on the ground next to me. Um, I could feel my arms and my legs getting colder, getting weaker. Eventually, my blood supply got so low that my vision closed down. Um, And I started passing in and out of consciousness for the last 15 minutes. And when my vision closed down, it went to this absolutely pristine white. Nothing else, just this absolute pristine white. And it started running through my mind. Is this the white light that people talk about? And at that time, there were also two rifle shots fired from outside the house. And when I heard those two rifle shots from outside the house... I knew that was my mates from Star Group and they're on their way to get me. My vision had started closing down. I'd lost all my energy, but I heard those two rifle shots and instantly 
I had an adrenaline dump in my body and my vision came back up to absolutely perfect. I was passing in and out of consciousness because my my uh, blood supply was so low. But the boys got to be within 15 minutes of those two rifle shots. They came in under fire. They risked their lives to come in and get me. There is no two ways about it. Part of their briefing was, we don't know whether you're going to pick up Derek or we're going to pick up a body. We don't know whether you're going to get shot and injured or shot and killed. And every one of those guys stepped up to the plate and said, I still want to go in. No question about it. They risked their lives. They picked me up. They got me to a medical retrieval team. The doctor and the ambulance officers, the nurses, they stood in direct line of fire for 10 minutes treating me while bullets were whizzing around their ears. One of my mates from Star Group walked up to Bill Griggs in the midst of it. Uh, Bill Griggs is the, is the doctor and we operated with him reasonably often, so we knew him well. He's walked up to the doctor, Bill Griggs, uh, and he said to the doctor, don't worry about the shooter. Don't worry about the bullets. I'm going to stand between you and the shooter. If the bullets come this way, I've got a flak vest on, so I'm going to be all right, and so will you. Now, that's the sort of environment that I was working in. 100% confidence that my team were going to be with me as soon as they safely could. But people like that guy who became the bullet catcher for the doctor take it to that next level. And that's what we rely upon in the police department is that our mates have got our back no matter what's going on. And we can't do the job we do without that sort of confidence in our teammates. Derek, did it run for about 40 hours? So I was on the ground for three hours. The siege went on for 38 hours after that. Every member of Star Group available at that time was called in um, and working double shifts and all the rest of it. And this is where the selection course, where we were put under pressure uh, without sleep and without food and all the rest of it, comes to the fore uh, because that's exactly what happened in this job. The guys were out there in the cold, in the middle of the night, very little protection, but still had to be operational and fully focused. So it went for 41 hours all up. And he was continuing to shoot during that 41 hours in the local paper people up to three kilometres away were saying that bullets went past their house or uh, went through the trees and broke branches as he was firing. So bullets were going that far. That's how much the risk was. And in the end, we had negotiators. We had all sorts of people interacting with him. And eventually he gave up. He, he said, no, I want to give up. Star Group did move forward, went to the house and took him out of the roof in the attic area of the house and down a ladder and into custody and, and he went to hospital with some minor injuries. The power, I guess, that you exerted over the situation uh, mentally no doubt played a major, major part in, in not only your survival, I would say there, but um, that long, hard road back through rehabilitation because, uh, as you said, so much of that is a mental, is a mental battle for sure. It was two and a half years of very intense rehabilitation. And there's two sides to the rehabilitation. There's the physical and then there's the psychological. Two and a half years of physical rehabilitation. And there were highs and lows and tears and doubts and fears and frustrations and failures and successes and all mixed through. And, um, and it was really, really intense. But two and a half years uh, after being shot, I made a full return to Star Group. Uh, on full duties with no restrictions. I went back to being a sniper, underwater recovery diver, um, and into the counter-terrorist role uh, as well. 
you know, fortunately there was never a terrorist incident in South Australia, so we never got to utilise that portion, but we trained for it. Derek, if we can fast forward to 2006, around about this time, just prior to this, you'd got a promotion to, to sergeant back, I think, uh, operationally general duties. But 2006, you decided to take a fairly uh, decent break away from the police to focus on family and other things. Uh, can, can you just walk us through that, Derek? Yeah, I uh, I got the promotion, uh, general duties to be a sergeant, supervising teams and absolutely loved it. But I had a situation with my son. I had now separated my, from my wife by this time. And I just went to the police department and said, hey, listen, I need to go part time so that I can look after my son. And they said, yeah, OK, well, you can go part time. You find yourself a part time position. And I've gone, well, hang on, don't you know where the part-time positions are? And they've gone, no, you have to be able to find that position, apply for that position, and if you're lucky enough to get it, then you'll be able to take time off and you know do a part-time job. And I've gone, that process is going to take too long, it's too hard. Uh, and so I said, my son is the most important thing to me. I'm just going to take a 12-month break from work, leave without pay, and just go and look after my son and make sure he's going to be all right. Uh, that 12-month break turned into a four-year break. Uh, my son needed me, and it was the, it's the best move I've ever made. My, my son was in a position where he could have gone one way or another. He's always been a good kid, but I knew I needed to spend more time with him. So I took three years leave without pay, and then I took 12 months long service leave at half pay, and I was away from the police department for four years. It's the best thing ever. Uh, the bond between my son and I what he is doing with his life now was set up during that period. And I went back to the police department after the four years, but I still needed to look after Josh. And, and I was already running my speaking business and my training business. And so I was able to use that to supplement a wage. So I went back two days a week, so 0.4, and absolutely loved it. But I went down to the police academy to be able to uh, operate it two days a week. Uh, that's where I did find my part-time job and I didn't have to share a position with someone. And I absolutely loved that down at the police academy as well. It was the opportunity to, again, pass on to people some operational experience. And it wasn't always the high risk and it wasn't always the star group stuff. Sometimes it was just the insights of many years within the police department and looking at things logically and methodically and being able to pass on that ability to stay calm and rational in a scenario and get people to start thinking through their thoughts before they have to implement them and absolutely loved it uh, but the time away having time with family keeping that work-life balance it was essential for me because if something had happened to my son and he hadn't turned out as well as he has now it was always going to be a good kid but I just feel that that input was valuable for me and valuable for him as well. Uh, and it's a time that I, I certainly don't regret. I did want to go on and get further promotion. I did want to go on and become inspector superintendent. That time away broke that pattern. And, and I probably started looking at the police department a little bit differently after that as well. But, but family was the most important thing to me. And I don't regret one moment of spending that time with my son. Well, Derek, uh, can I just thank you so much for taking the time to join us for a chat? Yours is an absolutely in incredible story, and, and I have no doubt that those listening to it will, will take so much, so much from it. And, and I just want to thank you for 
walking us back through some of those aspects of your of your time and the job. And and, and thank you, Derek, so much uh, so much for your service and and just how generous you've been with your time here this afternoon. Yeah, thank you, Brent, and and I thank you for your service in the job as well. But I thank you for what you're doing now. I've really really enjoyed it. Thank you. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.